I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. What's your approach to the treatment of a patient presenting in the emergency department after a traumatic injury, hit by a car and presenting with a compound fracture of the left lower limb? Good day and welcome to Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast, a program born during COVID times to emulate that general chit-chat and banter around the hospital with the idea of educating the medical student and GP alike. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide, and it's my pleasure to bring Aussie Med Ed to you. And in this series, we've taken a different approach where we ask consultants specialising in their area to address a particular problem and answer the questions on how they would both assess and treat that condition from a medical student or general practitioner's perspective. Once again, welcome to Aussie Med Ed, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast has been produced and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. Welcome, and today we're lucky enough to be once again joined by Peter Smith and Professor from the Royal Adelaide Hospital. We get to talk about a case of a 40-year-old lady who was unfortunately was hit by a car while crossing the road, with her left leg taking most of the impact. The information we're provided with is that she fell to the ground after impact, but did not lose consciousness, although she did sustain facial abrasions. She arrives at the hospital one hour after the injury, and a physical examination is, demonstrates a normal temperature of 36.8, a pulse of 136 beats per minute, blood pressure of 100 over 76, and a respiratory rate of 28 with saturations of 98%. Inspection demonstrates an open wound on the anterior aspect of the left knee, and through the open wound there's visible bone fragments with profuse bleeding from the wound. There's also a tourniquet applied around the thigh. There's also some bruising around the perineum as well. Now this will be a fairly common scenario presenting to the Royal Adelaide Hospital, and Peter's going to give his thoughts on how medical students should approach this case, should it be presented as an OSCE case, or even questions arising from it. Welcome Associate Professor Peter Smitham. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Gavin. It's great to be here. Well, this is quite a complex scenario, major trauma. How do you go about approaching such an injury with uh, obviously quite what severe injuries, an open wound with bones on view on the leg? and bruising their perineum, and some abnormal vital signs. Where do you start? Yeah, so I think it is a real complex scenario, and I think one of the key things to remember is if this was a real-life scenario, you'd have lots of members of the team around here. This would be a trauma call that would have been initiated. You'd have nurses, A&E doctors, general surgical, orthopaedic team, anaesthetists and others involved as well. But from a in point of view, if you were presented with this and you're, you've got to start the scenario, you start off right from the beginning again, which is a simple uh, ATLS or ABCD pathway. I'm sure this would have all been done by the ambulance, but it's really important to do that ABCDE again on first assessment. So if we go through those, A always starts for airway, is that correct? Yeah, so it's always for airway, but in a trauma scenario, you need to include the C-spine immobilisation. So that adds a slightly additional element from the normal ABC that is taught. So for this, the C-spine, often if they've come by ambulance, will have come already in a with the C-spine immobilised with a collar on and the head sort of taped down to the to, to the board. Okay, now I understand the airway also includes checking the mouth, making sure that nothing's caught in the airway, making sure the throat's clear, and then you proceed on to breathing. Is that correct? Breathing here, you'd be looking at seeing if there's equal chest expansion on both sides. You could put a pulse oximeter on as well, looking at the pulse rate. Again, if this was a, a true life scenario, you'd have lots of these things all happening simultaneously with a lot of people moving at the same time. Uh, then go on to the circulation, repeating its blood pressure and pulse and, and uh, vital signs. 
So as I understand it, the trauma team will involve a whole group of people, including an anaesthetist, a general surgeon, an orthopaedic surgeon. There'll be a radiographer there taking x-rays. There'll be an intern documenting everything and helping with the insertions of cannulas and then catheters. What other specialties are involved in the emergency team? The general surgeon is often there as well as a, a trauma lead. The A&E docs, I think you might mention, they'd be the main ones for radiographer, maybe there. But again, a lot of level one centres would be going on to a rapid pan CT scan on this patient. And that would, in, in some hospitals, that's done almost on their way to the uh, recess room. And otherwise, would they do x-rays of the cervical spine, pelvis and chest? Is that the three main initial x-rays you do? Yeah, lateral, C-spine, chest and pelvis, that's right. Yeah. So in this scenario painted... She's obviously orientated to time and place. She's breathing, although with a rapid respiratory rate because of pain. I presume the airway and breathing is fairly straightforward, but the circulation vibes aren't quite normal. Yes, yeah, so I mean, I'm worried by here that she's tachycardic and she's hypotensive. She's, you know, reaching at 100 over 76 for a systolic of 100. So I'd be worried that she's in an element of shock here and she's respiratory rates high as well. She's already showing signs of shock. Therefore, I mean, the circulation would mean that you'd want to be putting two large cannulas in, taking bloods off and group and hold, but administering getting uh, fluids on board as quickly as possible. From the story of that, that she's got a big open wound and the tourniquet applied from lots of blood, I think it would also be reasonable to be giving tranexamic acid uh, at this stage as well. Now, this transexamic acid is a relatively new development. I believe it works on the fibrinolytic pathway and prevents breakdown of blood clots. Therefore, it works by preventing bleeding. It's, it's relatively new but with some really great results. It's used in basically all trauma scenarios and even used in certain elective operations and stuff now. And the idea is that its aim is to stop bleeding, essentially. So it's a, a drug that helps reduce bleeding from the vessels but without causing increased risk of deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary emboli, I believe, which is an amazing drug. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely has the effect that it's not meant to be affecting DVTs and PEs as well. That's right. If you're worried about circulation, you'd obviously want to watch urine output. Normally we'd worry, we'd consider putting a catheter in. Is there any concerns you might do in this scenario about putting a catheter in? Yeah, so I mean, I think this, from an orthopaedic point of view and a trauma point of view in this patient, you've got to be worried about of any pelvic fracture and any sort of big trauma like this. In this particular scenario, the story talks about bruising around the perineum, which would be a, quite a, a warning sign that there's, there's going to be a pelvic trauma and possibly a, a pelvic fracture there. Other things that you'd be trying to look at is whether there's any uh, PV bleeding. Might actually suggest that the, you know this is an open fracture as well. It could could be a be a problem. There could also be some PR bleeding as well. So with the bruising in the perineum and the fact that she's in some sort of shock, albeit there is actually a wound in the leg, but obviously you'd be concerned about a pelvic fracture, and that can lead to a greater form of shock as well. I believe. Absolutely, I think it's uh, you know the pelvic fracture is one of the higher causes of uh, death from bleeding and certainly would be a lot more likely than, say, from the tibial fracture itself. And hence the need for x-rays of the cervical spine, chest and pelvis as part of the initial x-rays. Yeah, x-rays or CT, but, I mean, it may not be as obvious as this. So CT or or pelvic x-ray should be done in any trauma sort of scenario. So we've moved through that. In this situation, we do get a pelvic x-ray and it was actually a fracture of the pelvis. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, this would be... Uh, sort of open book fracture, I think is what we'll keep it nice and simple, will be the the one in this scenario that the patient has. And therefore the key to, is to close that space, close the dead space. And that would uh, be performed by a pelvic binder. Despite the fact there's an open wound in the leg and it's bleeding from the leg and there's a, there's a type of tourniquet in place, 
if we go through the ATLS principles, we've looked at airway, we've looked at breathing, we've come to circulation, worried about shock, and as part of the ABC, we've organised some pelvic X-rays or CT, which shows a open book fracture, which is a disruption of the pubic symphysis and the and the splaying of the ileum. The key thing at this stage is to get that pelvis closed to some degree to stop the bleeding. That's right. And again, this is often done by your ambulance crew before you even get to see them. And that would be putting a pelvic bind on. It's a pretty straightforward thing to be done. And you can do this easily yourself if you come across, uh, you know, you're unfortunate enough to come across a scenario like this. You don't need a particular pelvic binder to solve the problem. Easy steps that you can use. Firstly, just actually tying the legs together and internally rotating the, uh, the legs and the toes can actually close that space. And then even using whatever you've got available, a sheet, towel, uh, your jumper or something, to actually use as a, as a sort of binder over the pelvis. It's really important. And in this scenario, if you were doing it as an OSCE, there'd be a pelvic binder around for you to use. And Peter, would you like to elaborate on the actual positioning of the pelvic binder? Are there any tricks to where you place it at all? The key, I think, for med students in particular is how low that binder actually needs to be to actually be of use. Uh, and that means it's got to be positioned over the greater decanter. So it's not over the iliac crest, it's actually over the greater decanter of the hip because that's the, the if you look at a, an extra of the pelvis, you can see that would actually be the bit that closes that book or closes that dead space the most, is a lot lower than, uh, than, than the top of the pelvis. And that's a life-saving procedure that can be done easily. Absolutely. So now moving on, to stabilise a patient, you've got large cannulas in, you're giving fluids and you may even get O-negative blood available. What next needs to be done to stabilise the patient? On the fluids that you're giving, firstly, they should be warm fluids because you may be thinking of a lot of fluid lost. And they, you can actually make them quite hypothermic if you're giving a lot of saline, etc. that's not. If they're losing a huge amount, there's two things to be aware of. One is the mass transfusion protocol, and that's trying to not just give blood and fluid, but actually give the platelets and the clotting factors back as well. Otherwise, they're just going to continue to to bleed and exsanguinate if you're not actually giving those factors back to them to to allow the clotting to occur. The other important thing to consider is something called permissive hypotension. This is sort of a concept where you're allowing the blood pressure to remain low but not but sufficiently high enough that you're allowing perfusion to the leading or the organs, the life-threatening organs. So obviously that means making that the blood, the, the heart, the head are are perfused enough. Excellent. So what you're saying is if you have the blood pressure too high, it, they might bleed further. But if you have the blood pressure too low, it doesn't perfuse the vital organs and therefore it's a balance between keeping it too high and too low. Obviously, the next step is to assess their neurological assessment, make sure they're mentally alert and orientated. I believe there's a particular score system you might use for that. Absolutely. So here you're trying to do a Glasgow Coma score and actually look in the patient's eyes. If they haven't been intubated, then doing a, uh, the Glasgow Coma Scale, looking at how alert they are, if they're obeying commands, what their actual actions are, are really important. And then we move on to our secondary survey, including exposure, exposing the whole spine, looking at the, all the limbs, and checking out all the other structures that could have also be damaged as part of the initial trauma. Is that correct? Yep. So exposure is, is that sort of exposing everything you can. The, you can often be surprised that there's some hidden abrasions or anything more serious at the back if you don't actually do that, that log row properly. And I think, the, again, we talked a little bit about warm fluids above, but even in Australia at 35 degrees, the air-conditioned A&E when the patient is stripped and getting fluids can cause them to be hypothermic. So once you have stripped everything and ex- examined everything, you still need to make sure you keep them warm and cover them up where, uh, once you've done those basic checks. 
And there's certain warming blankets you can use to help with that as well, as which are often used in theatre. That's right. And not only just warming blankets, but even warming electric sort of plates that go under the patient as well that warm, warm the bed up itself. So the next step is a secondary survey. Yeah, that's right. So a secondary survey then, once they're stable enough to explore this, we'll be looking at everything else and looking at any injuries that this patient has. Obviously, there's the very obvious open tibial serration and wound and tibial fracture. But you want to make sure that you don't miss any other things that are not so obvious on first look. You know, classic things that are missed are dislocations of wrists and shoulders that may be missed. Usually upper limb ones are the ones that are missed because people focus down on the lower limb. So starting from a top-down approach is quite useful, particularly in this sort of scenario where you can easily get trapped at looking at the, the glaringly obvious injury first. This is why surface anatomy is so important. So you can examine the whole of the upper limb and lower limb feeling the clavicle, the proximal humerus, the epicondyles around the elbow, down across the wrist, etc., and down through the legs as well. That's right. I mean, it's when you're feeling, you're, you're knowing that sort of surface anatomy, but you're also feeling if you can hit, feel any crepitations, any crunchings and crackings going on, or anything just doesn't move what you expect and sort of is a stiffened movement. These can be alarm bells that something's wrong in that area. And I believe while still doing the secondary survey, it's important to keep going back to the primary survey, just checking the airway, breathing and circulation and make sure nothing's going off there as well, particularly such as something such as a cardiac tamponade or pleural effusion, etc. Yeah, that's really important. I mean, maybe not so for a med student, but when you're doing these sort of Aussie type scenarios at a, a slightly higher level, often you'll find that something's changed that you miss. And the, the key thing they're trying to get you back to is to go back to that ABC and start from the beginning because things can rapidly change and escalate in these sort of patients. Now, the key question I remember asking this as a medical student myself is about pain management. Obviously, this patient has had a head strike. She hasn't lost consciousness. She's alert at the moment. But what do, you, do you give IV opiates to help with pain relief given that she's had a head injury? Yeah, this is a common question that's asked. And I think the... The thing is, is, you, is uh, giving some pain relief is obviously appropriate because the, you're expecting them to have some level of pain. The, the key is to try and give it to a level that you'd expect without giving them too much and then reassessing that neurology based at a new standard baseline if, if things have after that immediately after an uh, analgesic is given. And along with pain management too, with an open wound, you might want to give some antibiotics as well. What are the standard antibiotics you would give to help cover them for, to reduce the risk of infection long term? Yeah, so a broad-spectrum antibiotic is required, and it may depend, again, where this injury occurred. This one in particular occurred on the road. But, you know, if this was in a, a farmyard or in a marine scenario, your antibiotic choices are different. The antibiotic choices, again, vary from hospitals, so check your own hospital protocol. But, again, normally it's just a broad-spectrum KEF is the main use. You may go on to having other ones, as I said, potentially if it's a more contaminated wound. On top of all of this, we've got to think about legalities too. She's been hit by a car. When I was going through as a, as a junior registrar, there was always the pr- protocol where bloods had to be collected for, as for part of the police samples to assess whether there's actually alcohol in, or other drugs in her system. Is that still part of the legalities as we're aware? Yeah, it's still, still part of that element. Uh, and it's an important thing to take, but at the same time, you know, you, it shouldn't detract you from, from focusing on sort of saving this patient. But as you're taking all the other bloods, it's an easy addition once you're sending off bloods for this patient. I'd like to let you know that Aussie Media is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, 
as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. Okay, so progressing. We've actually assessed her appropriately through the A, B, C, D and E. We've worked out that she's been predominantly cardiovascular, unstable, and given her fluids. We've cross-matched her blood. We've got transacamic acid running. We've got a pelvic binder in situ. And we're really working our way through our secondary survey, and we've really come down to the management of the fracture of the tibia. This uh, is an important element that needs to be done. You first need to assess the not only the wound, but you're lacking distally to look if they've got neovascular compromised distally. If there's pulses or anything are present, there's good capillary refill and everything distally. The next things for the wound itself is, as we talked about, you want to give a broad-spectrum antibiotic and potentially tetanus as well to cover her. Then we want to take any large debris or anything that can be easily taken and photograph the wound. Ideally, the aim of photographing is this, that then everyone's on the same board without multiple exposures to this wound once you covered up. And then you uh, do a simple wash in A&E, and then you can uh, use a sort of saline uh, gauze and cover the wound. And what about stabilising the fracture? Is there anything you do at that stage? Yes, I mean, the the fracture needs to be stabilised and immobilised. Uh, You need x-rays to make sure you know what you're doing. And ideally, this would be immobilised. If a tibial fracture, you'd be immobilising this in a back slab. So once you've got got a dressing on it and you've covered it up, you put a back slab on and had x-rays performed, then is that where we finish? Uh, Nope. You want to do a reassessment. So any, any intervention that you perform, you've got to do a reassessment. So once you've put a back slab on and before this goes to for another x-ray, you'd first want to reassess for neurovascularly distally again, make sure that your back slab or the movements that you've done for this wound haven't caused any compromise to the leg and the capillary refill and pulses are still present distally. So that's really important to do. You know, often these patients can get lost for several hours once they go off for an x-ray and you move on to the next patient before you look again. Uh, and you can miss a few things. So that's a real key thing in ED to do. And then the next thing is to get this patient ready for theatre. Again, this is making sure the patient is fasted, making sure that you've contacted theatres and the anaesthetist, making sure you've got enough fluids up to keep them maintained during this period. And then the management for this fracture will slightly depend on, on what what is uh, seen, but most commonly would involve stabilising this fracture with an external fixator, and washing and debriding this wound out before doing definitive um, fixation and management at a second operation stage. So you stabilise the tibia with an external fixator and have washed the wound out. You would not close the wound, though? You'd leave it open? Yeah, normally, again, this would be left open, usually with a, uh, a vac dressing. What about the pelvic fracture? If there's been an open book injury which requires a pelvic binder, does that pelvic binder stay on for six weeks while the pelvis heals, or is there any other treatment that's done at that stage? It's not usually stayed on for six weeks, but it can easily be stayed on for over 24 hours with sort of periods of, of it being released and put on rather than rushing to do something in the middle of the night. The sort of the, the, the theories of having to rush to put an X-fix on or fix this immediately has, has changed somewhat slightly. And some would actually now just go on to pelvic binders rather than going to an X-fix and then doing definitive operation. So there's been a little bit of a change on that front. But, uh, but yes, the... The pelvic binder doesn't stay on for the whole six weeks, that's for sure. And often you can find once the patient is hemodynamically stable and everything is settled down, you can sometimes release the pelvic binder and see if they still remain stable and there's no further uh, blood loss because that clotting has already occurred and stabilised that at that point uh, before you go on to definitive management of that fracture. 
So the pelvic binder can control things in the short term. If the if it was for some reason still bleeding, you might put an external fixator or do a definitive surgery to stabilize the pelvis. But that's pretty rare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if they're still bleeding and it's still a problem, then you've, there's other elements. First, you can consider you'd first consider going to the angio suite and embolizing any bleeds that are, are present there. If they're too unstable to go through the angio suite or this isn't working, other things that you can think of is opening and doing a pelvic packing for any bleeding that's in there uh, and then the, the fixation stabilization is last you know the with the key is we as we already talked about through the whole of this case is that abc is getting them that they're they're, they're breathing in their airway and the circulation are all stabilized and and uh, tip top and are the most important what's the reason they bleed so much is it a major artery that's been injured or is it mainly the, the pelvic veins that are just leak away if it was a pelvic artery normally they'd die at the scene unfortunately so it's the veins that are the ongoing bleeding that is the problem here, and it's those anastomosis and the and the, the and the sacrum that are causing the the majority of those those bleeds and, and problems. And I believe by keeping the pelvis open, it's actually putting stress on the veins, and that doesn't allow the actual normal contractibility of the vessels to try and clot themselves off as much. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's not only you leaving them open for that, but also you're providing more dead space for the bleeding to continue. The aim of closing that pelvic binder and closing that space is that you're closing the volume and therefore in itself that is actually reducing further loss by tamponading itself easier. Now, are all compound fractures of the tibia treated with an external fixator and washout, or would it, would it be? are there some scenarios where you might go in early and just nail the tibia and stabilise it that way? Yeah, so I mean, a classic tip for all medical students is there's never an always and there's there's never a never in, in medicine as a whole. So yes, there are certain occasions where uh, intermodullary nailing uh, and closure is primary rather than going on to an X-fix is almost the, what is considered the gold standard. Uh, and those scenarios would be often where you're not doing it, sort of that life and limb sort of surgery uh, and stabilisation factor. Maybe it's an isolated injury that's just the tibia on its own, or maybe the wound is not so severe and not so as a smaller, based on something called the Gusilla Anderson sort of classification. And potentially they're looking at the, where the fracture is in the tibia and, and the, the combination. So there's lots of other factors that you can consider. But from a medical student point of view, keeping it nice and simple, the aim is obviously life-saving and stabilization patient first, making sure those antibiotics go in because the biggest thing that can cause complications for open wounds is delay to antibiotics and stabilisation. And stabilisation helps reduce blood loss as well and reduces infection. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, I think that's covered a fair bit. It's a large, large case to discuss and it obviously would be a tricky one for an OSCE, but there's different parts of it would actually would be important to ask and certainly there could be a way... This could be used both in an assessment, but also a real-life situation where you'll see it quite regularly when you're working in a major trauma centre. So anything else you'd like to add to this this particular scenario, Peter? No, I mean, I think you've highlighted, Gavin, quite nicely that this could be broken down into several different mini-OSCEs. If you, for example, this could purely just be a an open fracture, an open wound, how they'd manage it and consent patient and uh, treat this. It could even be just seeing that initial ABCD area and a pelvic binder that's put it on wrongly and the student needs to highly identify this quickly and put it in the right place and it could also just be a counseling consenting to relatives after a trauma injury like this there's a few different avenues this could go if you were going to do this as an oski and really the key thing about all this is preparing you for real life scenarios and getting you ready for that time when you are faced with such a situation 
I'd like to once again thank Peter Smitham for coming along, Associate Professor from the Royal Adelaide Hospital. I really appreciate your time and help with this podcast. Thanks again, Peter Smitham. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to our podcast. I'd like to remind you that the information provided today is just for general medical advice and does not pertain to one particular medical condition or one way of treating a particular condition. If you have any concerns about information raised today, please do not hesitate to contact your general practitioner for further information. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please don't hesitate to give us a like or tell your friends about it or give us a positive review. We look forward to presenting another podcast to you in the near future on a different topic. Until then, stay safe. Thank you very much.